Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome, space monkeys, to my Mojo Dojo Casa house. I will now play the guitar at you. It's a full moon, and I'm going for a walk. So if you hear some cars and dogs and footsteps, that's what's up. But it's a good way for me to think about all the things and process the thoughts. So what we have today is some Q&A. And specifically, I have some good comments that I've saved up from people in various places, emails, Instagram posts, DMs, whatnot. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. So one question in particular was regarding intensity. And I touched on this on my last pod a bit, but I would like to recap this concept because I think it's important and I get this concept or this question quite frequently. And it simply relates to how to quantify intensity. I think what most people assume is that they should just stare at their power meter. And if their workout prescription 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 is library library their workout prescription is to ride in a particular zone at a particular power maybe a 20 or 30 watt range then they assume they should be in that range at every given moment and they also assume that sometimes that if they're at the top end of that range they're doing it better than if they're at the bottom of the end of that range and this is really a simplified paradigm it's it's incorrect aerobic aerobic metabolism doesn't respond the same way that fiber fatigue does so when you go to the gym and you perform a set to failure then you are fatiguing the fibers to the point where they will respond and get stronger that's assuming you give them enough time and fuel to recover and adapt to the stress, right? Said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands. So this is a, a fundamental tenet of strength and conditioning in most exercise programs. However, when we go in the gym and we assume that we have to fail in the last rep, that is an assumption. And it's only one way to think about gym. The reality is you can gain strength or force or speed a lot of ways in the gym without actually going to failure on the last set of every rep. But when we take this mentality and we transfer it over to any endurance exercise or endurance sport, this thinking is also too simplistic. It's too, it's too generalized. And it also lacks a bit of understanding about how the body registers or understands aerobic stress. So when you ride in zone two for five hours, we'll call it an aerobic endurance ride. Zone two is a common term for that. Depending on whether you're talking about a three zone model or a five zone model or an eight zone model or whatever, we'll just call it a five hour ride pace. How's that? And you're not exercising to failure when you do this ride, even though you're quite tired sometimes, right? It depends on how fit you are. But for most riders, most of the time, a zone two ride is going to be at least challenging enough to register some pretty solid fatigue. Now, if you're trained at a very, very high level, that may not be the case. But for most riders, it is. But that doesn't mean you achieved failure at the end of the set. What would failure mean in a zone two ride? Well, you can't achieve failure in a sub-maximal exercise. Right? Or rather, if you do achieve failure, something really got derailed. <laughs> Let's say it that way. What would failure mean in a zone two ride? Or an aerobic endurance ride? Well, it would mean a catastrophic bonk. Right? Um, but think about it literally. When you are performing a set of, I'll just make up some numbers for easy example, four by eight back squats in the gym, 
and you get to the end of the second set and you're on rep number seven and it's insanely hard and you barely get the bar up and then you go to complete your eighth rep because someone told you to, whether that was your dad or your hot girlfriend or your that kid who beat you up in high school one too many times and pushed you in a trash can remains to be determined. But you go for your eighth rep and you make it halfway up and you can't make it. And hopefully you have a spotter there. Otherwise with a back squat, it's going to get pretty ugly. Might have to drop the bar or dump the bar or maybe you fall over. Maybe you injure yourself, right? Probably what most people would do is squirm any way they can to get that bar up, which means using suboptimal form, which probably will result in an injury, which would be unfortunate. So, but we all have to learn our lessons. I've done it many times. And so we, we hit failure, right? And failure in this context means you couldn't complete the last rep, not with proper form. Maybe you couldn't complete it at all. Maybe you fell over. So what would failure be, what would failure be in a sub-maximal endurance ride? Sub-maximal meaning you didn't try to make the absolute highest average power for the entire duration of the ride you, that you could, right? So in case you're kind of trying to figure this out, if, if your paradigm is about 30-minute time trials and criteriums and road races, you're wondering how you could make as much power as possible for a five-hour event, well... Uh, the answer would be, I mean, there are time trials that are this long for sure, but a lot of gravel races end up being close to this, depending on the course and how much of a Peloton there is. And a lot of mountain bike races can end up being a lot like this. It's, it's pretty much a five hour time trial. It depends a lot on how you view effort and output, because you could argue that you're still time trialing as fast as you could, even on descents, even though you're not pedaling, but you're going as fast as possible. So there's that nuance to it. But anyway, without getting sidetracked on that point, the concept that I'm trying to illustrate is that we, in order to hit failure in this five-hour ride, we would have to fall off our bikes and not be able to pedal. That would be the equivalent of not being able to complete the rep. So about a half hour from your house, four and a half hours into the ride, 30 minutes from home or 10 minutes from home, you'd have to be so trashed that you couldn't make another pedal stroke. And the only way to get home would be to call an Uber or your uh, boyfriend or whatever to come get you and give you a ride. Or you'd have to walk or drag yourself home by your lips or something. So that doesn't happen very often. Now, it did happen to me when I was a junior. I tried to climb the famous Morgul Bismarck Wall when I was about 14 years old on my road bike on one of my first ever road rides and literally couldn't make it to the top. I just wasn't strong enough. This is like a... I don't know, I think it's like a 2K climb. And it's it's a pretty steep little zinger in the Colorado foothills. It's got a, I don't know, I think it's like a 14% grade, if my memory serves me correctly, something like that, for a pretty good stretch, maybe 600 meters or something at the top. And I just fell over or, or couldn't pedal anymore. I don't know if I fell over, but I definitely stopped and had to take a break and probably walk a bit. And I don't know if I got back on or what. It was a long time ago, I'm old. So that would be an example of failure. That doesn't happen very often in cycling, right? So this way of thinking that you're going to optimize things or somehow do it better by riding at the top of the zone instead of in the middle of the zone, this is not really the way to think about things. This is, this is what I would offer is incorrect. What is correct? Well, it's a sub-maximal effort. So the idea is not that you're training intensively, it's that you're training extensively and you're also refining efficiency. You're refining the ability to ride at certain intensities more effectively. So in order to do that, all you have to do is ride at that intensity. Now, it's a little more complicated than that. We can pay attention to the variables involved in that ride. Is it a zone two ride that involves a lot of climbing or is it flat? What kind of cadence do we specify? Cadence will impact metabolic load. Substrates will impact metabolic load. What do I mean by that? Well, the type of fuel you put in your body will impact what energy you use to ride on that five-hour ride. So if you get up and eat eggs and avocados only and then try to go ride five hours, that's probably going to be a very different outcome than if you eat a giant bowl of oatmeal, four pieces of toast with honey, and a waffle. 
So we have to consider how our fueling choices impact our physiology. What kind of gas are you putting in the tank? Humans are a bit unique because we can run off different fuel sources, different substrates, but some are more optimal than others. And before you climb onto a dogmatic chair or assume that I'm about to, rest assured that for me, bioindividuality rules everything. Well, it's not really for me. It's just the way humans work. But I seem to have figured this out. And I think a lot of people consistently underestimate it. So they go prognosticating about a certain diet or, or becoming dogmatic about a way of eating. And look, I'm not here to demonize anybody's methods. I'll just point out what's happening. What's happening is people have experiences. They have individual experiences. And then they make flaws in judgment or logic, we'll say. So I'm shifting gears a bit here on a related topic, but this is about diet and about how people proclaim their diet to be the one. This is quite common. So someone eats the standard American diet. We'll give it an easy example to illustrate my point. The standard sad diet. So this diet is comprised of fast food and Olive Garden and a lot of meals with seed oils, a lot of meals with uh, conventionally farmed and raised and produced foods, uh, lots of packaged foods, right? Pop-tarts, cookies in boxes and bags, things like that. More food comes from boxes and containers and packages than it does from farms or fields or forests. And for those of you who have been listening to my pod for a while, you know that I think this is not the wisest way to eat, or as was famously said in the second Indiana Jones movie, he chose poorly. Also, if you don't listen to my podcast regularly, you'll know that I, you'll soon find out that I randomly insert super obtuse movie quotes. It's just the way my brain works. Sorry about that. So we have this person who's eating the standard American diet and a big enough uh, challenge will precipitate a crisis, right? Or poor enough life choices will precipitate a crisis. That's the, the pattern. Keep doing what you're doing. If it's not serving you, then eventually you'll manifest a health challenge. Think about the way I'm saying that for a second, please. We create the vast majority of our health challenges. We create them. Understand how that works. Most of the time, you're not an innocent victim. So we've precipitated a health crisis in our standard American diet because we're eating like shit. And then one day we come across a radical change in dietary philosophy. Now that, that change could be just about anything, but it's a myopic in focus as opposed to unfocused. So it could be veganism, could be vegetarianism, could also be carnivore, could be Atkins, could be keto, could be paleo. It probably doesn't matter. It's the act of the person choosing to change their diet into something more constructive and more refined and more health-oriented. Rather than taking food for granted, they are now focused on food and they are selectively making choices. So the first phase of refining your diet is to cut things out, right? So they no longer eat donuts. They no longer eat Pop-Tarts. They no longer eat Tostino's frozen pizzas. And now they're eating, we'll, we'll use vegetarianism as an example. They're eating lots more plant foods and a lot more fiber. And a lot of those plant foods contain a lot more water. So their system is effectively being detoxified because they're eating foods with a much higher water content because vegetables have a lot more water than packaged foods do. They probably also have higher nutrient density than packaged foods. Depends on the vegetables you're choosing exactly, but for the sake of argument, we'll pretend that's the case. And they also have a lot more fiber. And so fiber will pull all this sludge out of the gut 
that has accumulated after years of eating Taco Bell. So the person feels amazing because they're detoxifying their body, we'll say. A lot of people don't like that word. I'm just going to use it anyway. And they're probably losing weight because they're taking little pockets of feces out of the deep, dark holes of their intestines. And they're probably losing weight because they're eating less calories. And while I do not believe a calorie is a calorie, and I do not believe that counting calories is the optimal way to improve health, nor is it the optimal way to lose weight, I think it is a factor. So, okay, they feel better. And because they have this life-changing experience where their inflammation drops and they lose weight and they look better because their skin clears up because they're eating less toxic food, they make two errors in judgment or two errors in logic. One is they assume that the vegetarian or vegan diet is the end result. It's the optimal end result of all dietary adventures because they had this dramatic experience of health, of improving health. And this is incorrect. Why? Because health is not an endpoint, it's a journey. You can put that on a postcard. That's a good Hallmark card for you. And uh, as cliche as it is, it's true. We are always evolving to have better health. We are always improving our health if we're on that path. And our health may continue to improve endlessly. So it may be that a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet is optimal for this person, but it's unlikely. And it's also unlikely, even if it is, even if they are one of the rare people who vegetarianism or veganism works for really well long-term, there are a lot of people it can work for short-term. In my experience, not too many it works for long-term. That's just my experience. It doesn't mean it applies to you. And I'm not here to attack any vegetarians or vegans. This is just the example for illustration purposes only. It's unlikely that the form that they choose initially of vegetarianism or veganism, I'm using those relatively interchangeably now because they both start with V and it's convenient and they're kind of close to each other. It doesn't, the first form they choose will likely not be the final form, meaning as they continue to practice health, improved health, their choices will evolve, right? Because the human body is always responding to stress. The human body is always responding to its environment. So initially you try something and it kind of works. And then after time, you realize it doesn't work at all. This is the same thing that's true with saddles and shoes. Our riders are so perplexed when they ride a shoe for four years and then they put it on one day and they can't ride it because it hurts their foot. Well, what happened? Your foot changed. Why? Well, because your, your body is always adapting to the stress you put it under. So your foot changes and now the shoe doesn't fit anymore. Or it creates a hot spot or a painful spot. I have to put on my glove here. My fingers are starting to feel the effects of the cold. Very good. Glove one, applied. So that's the first flaw in logic that is made. We assume that veganism or vegetarianism is the end point and we're done. This may or may not be the case. Now, if we continue our example just for illustration, you'll see what I mean. <clears throat> what happens next is the person is a vegetarian for a period of time, three years, one year, five years. And the vegetarian diet helps them feel amazing and then after they detoxify from their standard American diet or their health improves as a result of this cleaner diet, less a diet that's less taxing on the liver, less taxing on the organs because of the heavy fats, the heavy salts, the, the high content of processed foods. Now we're eating vegetables mostly. In theory, that's, a, that's the best case for a vegetarian diet. Sometimes people go vegetarian and they eat a bunch of absolute shit that's just as processed as a, pro as a standard American diet. But that example aside, okay, so we're, we're doing pretty good for a couple of years. 
But then all this fiber and water begins to irritate the gut long-term. And some of the natural defense mechanisms that are included in plants, the fangs and teeth of the stationary animal, as it were, that's planted in the ground, start to add up and wear on the body. Additionally, all that fiber going through the gut begins to take a bit of a toll on the intestinal lining and inflammation and joint soreness result. This is a reasonably common outcome for vegetarians or vegans, chronic joint problems. Oh, I'm walking through a new neighborhood. This is quite the landscaping job these people have. Bravo. Well done. So, okay. Then we've precipitated another health crisis through our dietary choices. And if the person is really attached to their outcome because they're so rearward facing in terms of the gains they've made from their vegetarian diet, that is, they remember acutely how uncomfortable they were, how unhealthy they were, what challenges they were having with the standard American diet. And the last thing they want to do is give up that amazing health boost they had by becoming vegetarian. That they dogmatically attach themselves to staying vegetarian. This is where the problem comes, really. When they refuse to recognize that what they're doing is actually damaging their health. And that they really need a change. And this is unfortunate when this happens. Quite unfortunate. And so the person suffers. Now, hopefully they're not dogmatically attached to this dietary perspective and they realize it no longer serves them. And then they go to the next evolution. Also, hopefully that evolution isn't an extreme. Hopefully it's not from veganism to carnivore, but sometimes that happens. And you have to go to the ends of the spectrum on either side to truly understand what the hell is going on. Athletes in particular, cyclists tend to do this. It's really born out of the idea that they're so in love with the sport and they're so fanatical about performance that they'll do anything to get better. And I'm here to tell you that that's not the greatest perspective to have. And the reason I can say that with authority and authenticity is because I have done it about a million times. So just take my fucking word for it, please. It's a stupid idea. It never works. Literally never. So we have these examples of elite athletes who do anything for performance. And what do you get when you do absolutely anything for performance? You tell me. When an athlete is at the world tour level and they're not winning and they will do anything for performance, what's the next step? Yes, you're thinking correctly. They will take illicit substances. And this doesn't work out. Now, whether or not they get away from it isn't what I'm, get away with it isn't what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the long-term consequences to their conscience and their health, right? Can you lay your head down on the pillow at night and actually get good rest? Or is your conscience telling you that you are a dickhead for cheating? Only you can answer that question. But I'll tell you what, I rest well at night. And it's not to say I'm a perfect person. I've never made a mistake in my life. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there are certain things that I can be sure about. And one of them is my integrity in the sport. So there's that. So back to our athlete who's gone now down the extreme roads of vegetarianism and we'll say carnivore. And this, this next mistake they can make is that when they reach their perceived endpoint of diet, whatever that stage that may be, whether it's the first, second, third, or 10th, the, the evolution, they now proclaim that everyone should do the same thing because no doubt if they had excellent results, then everyone else will too. I mean, it's obvious. If they ate Taco Bell and Domino's and Olive Garden, and then they went to vegetarianism and felt amazing and lost 12 pounds and their skin cleared up and their, their joints stopped aching and they stopped having diarrhea all the time for two years, then their friend 
who also eats shit food should do exactly the same thing and it will work for them. And this is incorrect. Why? Because of bio-individuality. Now, I'm not saying that person shouldn't try vegetarianism or veganism, but I am saying that the chances of it working for them are not amazing. It could work, and they could likely go through the same transformation of simply eating better food, improving their health. However, there's one law that is true in all of diet, and that is simply that one man's kryptonite is another man's rocket fuel. For example, my wife is allergic to mushrooms. Jonathan Vodders is allergic to broccoli, of all things. Yes, that's correct. Jonathan Vodders is allergic to broccoli. You've probably never heard of anyone else who is allergic to broccoli, but he is. So, there you go. For one person, broccoli is a health food, and for another, it'll put him in a hospital. I don't have too many food allergies. I do have some sensitivities, but... The one real allergy I think I have is to rosé wine, which isn't something I care to drink anyway, so it's not a big loss. But it's the one substance on earth that's guaranteed to give me a migraine headache. So there you go. Rule number one of being an athlete. Know thyself. And don't drink rosé. So, okay, we've covered submaximal training, and then I got off on a long thing about diet and dogmatic behavior. And I hope that's maybe some useful thoughts. But I'll continue on the training discussion to say that, generally speaking, and I believe I touched on this on my last Q&A pod, but I, again, I think this is a really important topic. We, generally speaking as a coach, I recommend that riders consider heart rate and perceived exertion as the two defining metrics for Submaximal intensity efforts. Submaximal we can define as really any interval that isn't trying to average the highest power possible for the duration of the effort. Now people get confused on this terminology, so I'll be real clear. And this was clarified in my mind by some of the discussions I've heard from Steven Seiler, American guy from Texas who lives in Norway. At least I think he lives in Norway. Maybe he lives here now. I'm not sure exercise physiologist, guy who studies stuff, did a lot of interesting work, and he's a big proponent of polarized training. And Stephen talks about giving people a very simple prescription, for example, four by eight maximum. And what he offers is, if he just tells people, I want you to do four times eight minute efforts at maximum pace with four minutes of recovery in between or whatever you prescribe, two minutes or one minute or eight minutes, and you let the athlete solve the equation, meaning you let them start to figure out how hard they can go for those eight minute efforts. And they're gonna make mistakes. And I think this is brilliantly simple. And it underlines a really important point about training, which is, I think the vast majority of coaches and athletes alike assume that the only benefit, the singular benefit, of training with intensity, doing intervals, or what well, we can define intensity in different ways, right? We could say a really long zone two ride is a form of intensity. It's just extensive intensity instead of intensive. We can describe it that way. The singular benefit of training with intensity is the physiological impact on the body. That's what's most important in training, meaning if you're trying to do VO2 work, did you spend enough minutes in VO2 to make yourself tired in the VO2 system? We'll say it's a very superficial way to describe it, but I think you get what I mean. Um, likewise, if you're doing sprints, did you do enough sprints to make your sprinting legs tired? Your neuromuscular system fatigued enough to respond? If you're doing an endurance ride, did you go long enough to do endurance training, right? So if you did enough load to train a certain physiological system, then that's the end point of the workout. And there's nothing else that needs to be discussed or discovered. However, I would offer that there is an entirely different level or benefit of training 
which is simply put self-discovery. So when Steven Seiler gives his athlete a four by eight maximum and they go out like a bat out of hell in the first eight minute interval and they do 140% of their FTP for a minute and then they explode into smithereens and wonder how they're going to get the other 28 minutes worth of work done. That's a powerful lesson, right? Likewise, if somebody gets three efforts into a four by eight and they, and then they're performance completely tanks because they didn't eat or drink enough before the workout or during the workout. That's a valuable lesson. If you give someone a set of Tabatas of three by 10 minutes of Tabatas, 40, 20s, for example, and they've never done Tabatas for before, the biggest takeaway from the workout may be the self-learning they have when they get to the third set and they realize that they didn't go anywhere near hard enough. Or conversely, that they went way too hard. Or that they kind of turn it into medium mush. And all of these are really valuable lessons. So it's not only the physiological aspects of the workout that are important. And a lot of athletes will write me and say, well, did I do it right? You know, do I need to do it over? Or did I miss a day of training? Or did I, you know, they're concerned that they're going to fall behind in fitness. Because they perhaps didn't complete this workout Maybe they got done with the Tabatas and they didn't feel totally smoked, completely emptied, right? It's almost like there's this underlying fear that if you don't absolutely annihilate yourself, that you're never going to have a chance of even staying in the Peloton. And look, I mean, hard training is important and it's part of the sport, but people need to chill the fuck out sometimes. Like, it's not that important, you know? You, you do a workout that was supposed to be 100% and it comes out at 82% a couple times a week. You're probably just going to be fresher for the weekend. And you see examples of this over and over again in sport where especially seasoned athletes barely train and then they show up to an event and they still do fine. I mean, I pretty much mastered that in the last two years. Like if you saw my CTL before Unbound this year, you'd probably laugh at me. In fact, maybe one of these days I'll break it down for everybody. But I managed to win the freaking race, at least in the old man, not fifth overall in the hundred. I didn't suck that bad. Now, granted, I can suck wheel like nobody's business. So that's what 35 years of getting your ass kicked in the sport gives you. But the point I'm making is that there are all kinds of benefits to training that aren't just physiological. If you walk away from a session of Tabatas or a session of sprints with more self-knowledge about how hard you can truly go, that gains you confidence. That gives you skill in a Peloton. It gives you racecraft because it gives you a level of self-understanding that enables you to truly dig extra deep over the last 30 meters of a climb to barely hang on the wheel and stay in the lead group and then win the race or get your first podium. Understand? So please don't assume the only benefits of training are from the physiological workload. They're also from self-discovery. They're also from negotiating the barriers of central governor theory, which is really about your own nervous system shutting down when you go really, really hard because your body's under stress, right? Understand the basic equation here. What's happening when you begin to increase intensity on the bicycle and you go from recovery pace to aerobic endurance pace or zone two, and then you lift pace from there and you get into Inigo San Milan zone two land, and then you go to tempo and then you're on the borderline of threshold a few watts before your nervous system perceives this activity as a threat to your life right? That's why when you approach threshold, you open your mouth more and you stop talking and it becomes harder to have cohesive thoughts or sentences because more of your brain power is being consumed by the possibility of death. Why? Because there's a delay in oxygen kinetics, right? That's why it's also why when you do a sprint, if you're riding along at a very easy pace, recovery pace, and then you do a 10 second sprint as fast as you can, 
it doesn't matter if you set a new 10 second PR faster than you've ever gone in your entire life. Your heart rate will not get that high in only 10 seconds, assuming you were riding easy before and you ride easy after that sprint. Why? And also the peak heart rate will come after the sprint. Why? Because it takes your aerobic system time to register the load and to catch up to the oxygen debt that was created. That's why it's called oxygen debt, right? You're writing checks that you have to pay off later. The nervous system of the human body, of course, knows this. It's got a, an ancient wisdom, we'll say, and that's built in. So when you're riding really hard on a mountain, halfway up and you've been going hard for 10 minutes at threshold, your nervous system registers a sense of threat. Because if right now I were to hold my breath on this walk, I might be able to hold my breath for, I don't know, I'll just make up numbers 30, 40 seconds before I incurred and uh, before I encountered some pretty solid resistance for my system to want to breathe. And if I tried to hold my breath for two minutes, I might pass out. And if I tried to hold it for three, I probably would pass out. And then guess what? When you pass out, you start breathing again. Your nervous system switches everything on. That's what it does. It'll take out your consciousness in order to jumpstart your breathing pattern and keep you alive. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong on this, if anyone knows differently, but I believe all things being normal, it is impossible for a human to hold the, to kill themselves by holding their own breath, <laughs> right? So the nervous system will override this conscious decision to hold your breath. It happens pretty quickly, but if you decided to hold your breath while you were at threshold, well, I won't say try it sometime because you might pass out and crash. Oh, I don't recommend it. Ooh. Hi, Dougie. But if you were to hold your breath at threshold while you were riding up a hill, you would incur extreme oxygen stress within seconds. That's because O2 and CO2 are being used by the muscles at a very high rate, right? Your oxygen consumption goes up as you approach VO2 max. Makes sense, doesn't it? Hopefully what I'm explaining isn't super trite and pointless. What I'm trying to say is your nervous system perceives threat as you go harder. So when we understand this, it helps us understand why it's useful for us to sometimes play with different intensities in exercise and also why we have to at times put ourselves in unpredictable situations or novel stimulus or novel durations and intensity of exercise to be able to understand how our body works and to negotiate this central governor theory, which is really where the nervous system shuts things down for you because of fear of injury or death. That's how you can learn to go really deep on the bike. And when you get really good at it, you can go really deep on the bike and still maintain a high level of coordination and conscious thought. And therefore you can do things like execute tactics or watch the lap card in a criterium or a points race and know what lap is coming and know when the sprints are or watch what team is chasing or watch who just attacked. And you're not just in a blur of following wheels and hang on for dear life, desperately clinging to the, the wheel in front of you, not knowing who's where or what or where you are in the race and forgetting to eat and drink. So the deeper you are in that cave of nervous system thread, the less consciousness you can apply to your race situation, the less technique you can apply, right? The sloppier your cornering comes, becomes. The worse your technique becomes when you are in a cyclocross race and you jump off your bike and try to hop over a barrier. So we just saw a couple crashes this week at the world level in cyclocross. We saw Vanderpool go down and take himself out of the lead group. And then we saw Lyle Hennert almost lose the race when he crashed after a series of barriers. And that's not completely uncommon at that level, but it's relatively unusual. But that's why cyclocross is such an interesting sport because everybody's underbiked. So it 
And also the conditions can be incredibly challenging. So it really puts the riders in a position where they're likely to make mistakes. Even the best guys in the world can make mistakes and the race can change on a dime. So that's what makes it interesting. Because you give guys limited tire width and then you put them in all this sand and mud and barriers and hills and crazy stuff. And then you put them under extreme stress and you just watch. And the riders make the race. And sometimes you get to see some pretty catastrophic mistakes. And other times you get to see some pretty remarkable comebacks or feats of athletic performance. I mean, you see those all the time. So I think cross is one of the more entertaining venues for that type of examination of the negotiation between nervous system, skill, technique, and effort. Surfing that line. So to synopsize that point, we can think about training not so much in terms of just physiological gains, but also in terms of self-knowledge. Uh, like a physiological exploration almost, you might say. Okay, so I had one more question that I'll read to you here from Barney. Hi, Colby. I have a bit of a generic question, and I couldn't find what EF's opinion is on the matter online. It would be a cool blog post or video topic, in my opinion. This is related to what I was just talking about. It's a subtle variation on the theme. If heart rate zone and power zones diverge, i.e. zone 2 power puts one in zone 3 or zone 4 heart rate, which should you focus on? And again, I may have spoken about this last week or two weeks ago when I did my, my previous episode, but my answer comes back to a, a really simple equation. If you're doing a sub-maximal effort or an endurance-oriented effort, could be tempos also, or intensive endurance time, really we want to use RPE and or heart rate to guide intensity and let power kind of be what it is, especially early season or if you're really out of shape because you're going to get wicked heart rate drift when you're out of shape. It's just the way it works. And as a side note, I'll say one of the ways to track if this is improving or not is to put your bike on the trainer, which I don't normally recommend, and put it in erg mode, which is like a double sin. But I'll say trainer bikes with erg mode, it's a nice little home laboratory because if you do uh, an endurance ride on the trainer or an intensive endurance ride, that'd be like zone two plus in integral world, right? Between, in, between zone two and tempo, we'll say. You do one of those rides in erg mode with constant power and heart rate and the temperature's constant and you keep your cadence relatively constant. You can basically use that as a proxy for aerobic an aerobic fitness test. You could do it even every couple of weeks, every week if you wanted to. Now, I've talked a lot about the detriments of riding the trainer too much, so you know the caveats that come with that. However, when you use erg mode to control power precisely, then you can exactly see how heart rate is changing in an hour or hour and a half or or so endurance ride on the trainer, and you can watch how much heart rate drift you get, and then you have a really clear idea of how aerobic fitness is improving or not. So that's pretty tidy, actually. It's kind of one of those little areas where I think it's acceptable to use the trainer and maybe even erg mode once in a while. Most of the time I do not recommend erg mode. I think that thing's a train wreck, especially when you're trying to do intervals. Because everybody goes harder on the trainer. Uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. Almost everyone's RPE goes up on the trainer. And so frequently that means power needs to come down. It doesn't mean you suck or you're a bad person or your FTP is lower. Just roll with it and do the work. You're doing intervals on the trainer indoors, all of it's stupid anyway. Just get some work done and get it and do the best you can and call it good. And base your effort off RPE. That applies to the trainer. Now, back to Barney's question. When you see this divergence outdoors, first just observe it. And then, especially when things start to really get out of control, that is heart rate drift of more than 7, 10 beats in that neighborhood, then you're starting to reduce your intensity. Um, that is reduce your power, your output and sort of keep heart rate where it is and RPE where it is. That's my recommendation. I think it's the best way to handle that. Then later after a few weeks or maybe a month or so, or two months of this type of training, we expect to see power and heart rate be more linear or 
congruent with each other. And then you can begin to use, well, it won't really matter. You're observing them anyway, so you can see, but both of them you can kind of use to dictate intensity. Whenever you're doing efforts that are maximal or especially super maximal, that is above threshold. So one minute intervals, three minute intervals, five minute intervals, etc. Then we're primarily using power, especially for short intervals, really short intervals like sprints or Tabatas. You want to use power. Now, Relative perceived exertion is always the most important metric to use in any situation because it tells us your sense of strain. That's really what you're asking. How much does this hurt? And you have to understand that perceived exertion is subject to your life circumstances and your total stress, all stress summates. So if you had a horrible day at work, and you know you've got a wicked day of work tomorrow and you're dreading it because you, I don't know, I'll just make up some situations, have a long meeting with your boss that you know is going to suck or it's some aspect of your job that you really don't like doing or maybe you have to be working one-on-one -on -one with a colleague that you really struggle with, I don't know, something like that. Then your intervals might be a little more challenging than normal because you're carrying that increased stress load. So we have to be realistic about how our life stress impacts our sensation of work capacity. When things are flowing and you're carefree and you feel like you're fit and things are good and you're, you know, doing well at work and your relationships are going smoothly and you're eating well and you're sleeping well, then power outputs that are uh, normally very challenging for you might seem a little easier, a little lighter. So perceived desertion goes down. And that doesn't mean you necessarily increase power. It can mean that you just enjoy a good workout. And maybe you add a rep or two at the same output. That would be my suggestion. But resist the temptation to bury it or go nuts or set a bunch of PRs. There's an old... Um, there are old war stories about the Australian track cycling team. And the story goes, I believe this is from maybe Walsh days or Sutton days or both. The stories go that if a rider ever set a PR in training and they were on the Australian national team, they were sent home immediately. Now, why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. So let's say you're three weeks into a training block and you have a world cup or world championships in 10 weeks and you go out and set a PR a flying 200 or a flying 500 or whatever, a flying 2k or 3k. Well, first of all, something went really wrong because you're weeks away from your peak event and you just set a PR and elite athletes do not set PRs all season long. In fact, when you're really well trained and you've, you've been practicing sport for years, you only set a PR every once in a blue moon. So it better fucking come on race day, not, not three weeks into your 12 week training block, because then you really screwed the pooch, right? Your timing is way off. You're going way too fast, way too early. So that's problem one. And that's a, that's a problem of coaching or maybe arousal or maybe who knows what. There could be a few explanations for that, but that it doesn't happen too often. But when it happened, the writer went home, but the real reason they went home is for reason number two, which is somebody sets a PR in training. They get really excited. The athlete's excited. We all want to set PRs all the time. And naively, we might think that setting PRs is an amazing thing. Well, sure it is. But do you want to do it in training or on race day? If you're a competitor, if you're a racer, you want to do it on race day, not just going up some random ass climb. If you're an amateur and you're thinking you can't think past your nose, then you want to set them every time you go out for a ride. This is not the way human physiology works. So take a step back and have a seat or take a knee and think about it for a second because this is incorrect thinking. So the reason they would send you home after you set a PR is because they don't want you to get super excited and then go super, super deep the rest of the session trying to set more PRs or trying to come close to your PR over and over again, which would be a very natural response for almost any athlete who's competitive. Like once you put the carrot in front of them, they're going to chase it. And a PR is a powerful motivator. So 
then by letting them continue to train after they set a personal record in the first part of their session, then you're allowing them to dig a huge hole in that day. And then it takes them a long time to recover from that hole. Because when an athlete's performing at a very, very high level, they can go fast and they can also do a lot more damage, right? They're producing a lot of force. Things are clicking, things are going well. So they can really shred themselves. They can tear themselves apart, especially if they're motivated and excited. So home they go, right? Something to think about. So I hope that helps answer a few questions as far as physiology bits and pieces. Okay, here's a question that I got from Arjun. I think this was on Instagram. When a rider has a more upright position with a limited anterior pelvic placement on the saddle, is it realistic to expect that a rider can engage their glutes properly in the pedal stroke, especially for instance, in mammals with a heavier upper body? By mammals, he means middle-aged men in Lycra. That's an acronym. Second part of the question, is it realistic to expect that the riders with limited hamstring glute flexibility can properly fire their glutes and hamstrings during the pedal stroke? Third part, when pushing really hard on the pedals, VO2 max for instance, should a rider in a correct bike position feel the glutes as well as their quads getting full with lactate? How do you see this balance between muscle groups? I can imagine this is highly individual depending a lot on, on a lot of factors, but curious to hear your vision on this. That's Arjun. Okay, thanks for your question, Arjun. I think I'm pronouncing your name right. That's A-R-J-A-N. Arjun might be Arjun. So, when we're thinking about cycling, is it realistic for an athlete to engage their glutes? Mm, kinda. Uh, we're sort of ice skating uphill on glute engagement in cycling. Why? Well, think about it from this perspective. When you're in the gym and you're doing back squats or deadlifts, one of the cues we get that's very common is drive through the heels, right? Drive with a flat foot. Foot is a tripod. And the tripod is the heel, the first metatarsal and the fifth metatarsal. The center of the calcaneus is the, the first part of that. And when we do that, we drive into the floor, right? And then we engage the posterior chain. We engage the Soleus, gastroc, hamstrings, glutes, etc. Uh, lumbar erectors, and probably to some degree internal and external rotators of the hip, depending on some other cues and the philosophy of the the foot placement, and maybe some cues you're giving as far as foot drive. I'll say it that way. On a bike, we have an axle at or near the ball of the foot. So the heel is, some people like to use the word floating. I don't think the heel is floating because we have a very rigid platform under the foot in our modern cycling shoes. Stiffness index 13.0 brought to you by Specialized. So we have all these marvelously stiff shoes and that allows a very stiff platform upon which to stand. That said, there's still a fulcrum near the ball of the foot. So that takes away some of the ability for us to engage the posterior chain and the glutes. So should you feel the glutes while you're pedaling? Probably depends on the rider. Depends a bit on their phenotype and their physiology, right? Um, depends on their ability to hip hinge. So that was the second part of your question is, should we expect the rider to be able to feel the glutes or have them load? Well, I would offer that we want them to load the glutes during hard efforts. So if a rider completes a VO2 effort, a five minute effort on a hill, we'll say, as a somewhat generic example, and they get to the top of that climb and they're they're really smashing at the last 30 seconds, they're out of the saddle. Well, we'll say in the saddle, let's, let's keep it seated cycling for the moment to keep it simple because those are confounding variables. And they complete that climb and their quads are totally loaded and they feel nothing in the glutes or hamstrings then they're either a quad dominant athlete or their position is putting them in a position in a, in a leverage point, which favors quad dominance. Now, most of the time in my experience, it's just quad dominance. It's not the position. Um, it can be both. And when saddles pull, when bicycle, let me say that again, 
when riders pull themselves forward to the nose of the saddle or put themselves on the rivet, as it's called, that is favoring a position of quad dominance. So those things all happen. This is not an optimal outcome because if you localize fatigue to less muscle groups, then by definition, you are limiting your capacity both for maximal oxygen uptake and you're also limiting your capacity because you're producing localized fiber fatigue in those muscles. So, you know, muscle fibers fatigue acutely in specific places. I mean, this is obvious. I'm sure just about everyone listening to this at one point or another has at some point felt like they had their lower back hurt enough to where they couldn't really go hard anymore. Now, that's an example. If you had extreme muscle pain or fatigue in your lower back, I suppose pain is one thing, but if it was muscle fatigue, they got to the point where it was painful. That's the example I'm trying to use. Then that would be a case where less localized muscle fatigue got to the point where it became a rate limiting factor. The same thing can happen with your quads. Like glycogen is stored in the liver and muscles. So if you deplete the glycogen in a specific muscle group that you only use to pedal the bike or rather an isolated set of muscles that you're using dominantly to pedal the bike becomes glycogen depleted, then what? If that's your only strategy, then you're toast. When those things are out of sauce, then you're done. Likewise, if those fibers are completely fatigued, then you're smoked. That's it. So efficient human movement always comes down to load sharing effectively. If we isolate too many muscles, then this is a bad strategy. And this is a problem that happens in cycling quite a bit. And it's a tension in the sport because aesthetically we want a smooth rider with suplex. And this was definitely me. And I definitely hurt myself at times with my strategy doing this. There's no question that there were moments in my cycling career where I was had acute localized fatigue in the muscles and it was slowing me down for sure. So when we load share, we use more muscles to drive the bike, simply put. That's a broad concept, and maybe I'll unpack that a bit in some future pods. I've been thinking a lot about my old pods on how to pedal a bike and how to expand that conversation. So this goes in that category. At some point, I'll bust that out. So we definitely want to load share. We absolutely want to load share between the glutes, quads, hamstrings, and the muscles of the calf, the soleus and gastroc, for sure. And if you're not doing that, if every time you do a hard effort, your quads are totally smoked and nothing else is even touched, then something ain't right. It's either your movement pattern or it's your position or it's both. And if it's both, it could be a chicken egg situation, right? It could be that you're extremely quad dominant and the bike ended up being set up that way over time because that allowed your quad dominance or enabled it. It could also be that you were actually somewhat balanced, but you got on a bike that was set up for quad dominance and that's how you ended up. Does it really matter which one? No, um, but it is curious. So either way, you got to fix both things. One more thing to explain on this, um, Arjun, if you imagine the difference between doing a step-up exercise where you can step up using the full foot, that is heel to toe. And then you do a step-up exercise where you're only on the ball of the foot and the heel is elevated. Now we'll do it without a platform. We'll, we'll do it in bare feet or gym shoes in our thought experiment. And you can quickly feel the difference in your mind, probably, between the muscles that are going to be used in those two exercises. And if you can't figure it out, go try it in real life. Just do some lunges or step-ups with your heel elevated. And try to keep your knee tracking relatively in the same place. The knee vertically over about the center of the foot, we'll say, and left to right relatively centered over the foot, uh, medial lateral. And then do it with the heel down and then the heel up and do several reps until you begin to get some muscle fatigue. And then observe. And what do you feel? Which one is more sustainable? Which one is more, has more localized fatigue? And I just about guarantee you, you're going to feel more fatigue without giving a, a plot spoiler in the quads, especially near the knee when you're on the ball of the foot. This is the way this works. So 
that can be a powerful weapon for riding out of the saddle. This is why I wanted to separate these two points earlier. Because riding out of the saddle, you will be more trending towards guad dominance. And also, you can go faster riding out of the saddle. Additionally, because you're sharing the load, not just between the lower legs or the lower limbs, we'll say, but also you can recruit more upper body and total body musculature. You can use lats and serratus anterior and more arms and all the things to drive the bike side to side. To get that head over foot position, you rock the bike side to side, right? Like uh, David Weck talks about. If you don't know who David Weck is, you want to learn more about head over to head over foot, go check out his channel on Instagram and you'll see all kinds of cool stuff. So that's the basic idea there is when we are on the balls of the feet, we're going to be, we're going to be driving more with anterior chain. Now, one other part of the question you asked is uh, something like, is it realistic to expect that riders with limited hamstring glutes flexibility or glutes flexibility can properly fire their glutes and hamstrings during the pedal stroke? Well, no, it's not realistic. Uh, this is one of the reasons that when I assess my riders before the fit, we look at their ability to hip hinge, right? So someone who has very limited range of movement in their hips, it's likely that they have tight glutes and or hamstrings. That's a pretty simple statement, but I think it's mostly accurate. And when we hinge forward and we have good range of movement with the hamstrings in particular, then we can hinge about an axis in the hips. That is uh, an imaginary axis that passes through the heads of the femurs. And so when you hinge forward, your lower back stays coupled with your sacrum and you do not introduce flexion in the lumbar spine, the lower spine, or the thoracic spine. Someone who's got really tight hamstrings will not be able to roll their hips forward into anterior rotation. And then they're going to have to get to the bar somehow. They're probably going to bend forward either in the lumbar spine or their thoracic spine. And that means that the glutes are no longer driving the pedals. The body is instead supported by the lumbar erectors. And it puts the spine in a state of flexion, which is likely to compromise the health of the discs over time. It also results in a really compromised breathing pattern because the diaphragm can't move vertically, which is part of its basic function during respiration. So um, when we ride hinged forward with improper form and tight hamstrings and tight glutes, the results are one, compromised breathing, Two, reduced glute recruitment. And by the way, the glute is the largest, um, well, it's the largest hip extensor for sure in the body. And we definitely want to use it in pedaling a bike. Glute is a huge muscle. If you're not using your glutes, you are, you're leaving some watts on the table, no doubt about it. And to confound matters, there are pros who ride with very little glute recruitment. So I'm going to do a pod in the future about why bike fitting is stupid. And I'll explain that concept a bit and why it's so confusing that so many pros look like crap on the bike. I will explain all that or I'll do my best too anyway. And uh, the third reason that you don't want to ride with a lumbar flexion or a, a, a lower back that looks like a rainbow, we'll say or a thoracic spine that looks like a rainbow is because it puts compromising stress on your, the discs of your spine and spines are like hoses. They do not like to be kinked. So think about it. The spine is the nervous system pathway for all this information going to and from your brain. Do you want to kink those hoses? Do you want to kink the hose that runs your cerebral spinal fluid? Do you know what that stuff does? Check it out, man. Wikipedia. Good tool. All right. Uh, my hands are frozen, so I'm going to go inside now. I hope you enjoyed this somewhat rambling episode. Walkie-talkie, we'll call it. Casa Dojo Mojo House. No, I said that wrong. Mojo, Mojo Dojo Casa House. I have played the guitar at you. Thank you for listening. As always, 
pedal with consciousness. Be well. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.